my father and mother told us as immigrants, you had to do certain things. I learned that my survival was based on being able to understand the roadmap that was in front of me, even though I don't follow those roads. You're listening to Disrupting Balance, the podcast, where we are busting myths and breaking balance. Here's stories from women who are pushing boundaries to navigate the decisions and changes that come with work, womanhood, and winning. I'm your host, Hanifa Barnes, speaker, decision strategist, and master imbalancepreneur. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. It is season two, and we are in the big myth season. But before we jump in, just a quick note that this particular episode, there may be some audio sounds that you hear in the background every now and then. Don't worry, it's not your device. It was the recording. Today's guest is called Professor, published author, artist, minister, poet, immigrant, mother, wife activist, sister, daughter. I call her friend. Dr. Antoinette Ellis Williams is the quintessential Renaissance woman. She is the outsider who has found her way in. The plethora of voice in her experiences as a Jamaican immigrant or as the only black child in an all-white dance class or as a child growing up in a church where women weren't allowed to speak or as the woman who recognizes that survival necessitates the intention of her voice in different spaces. All of it has emboldened her to dispel the myths and speak in many forms, whether she's presenting at a TEDx talk or teaching her college students at New Jersey City University or creating mixed media abstract art. Antoinette is an endearing force of power and Black womanhood. To connect with Antoinette or learn more about her experiences, her artistry, and her voice, see the show notes. So, hey, Antoinette Ellis-Williams, you don't understand how grateful I am to have you in the Disrupting Balance guest chair. I know you have a busy and thriving schedule, so for you to be here is a huge blessing. So we will jump right in with what is your story? Oh, well, it is my blessing to be here, uh, not a sacrifice. And um, thank you for even considering me for these conversations. So my story is uh, an outsider trying to find way inside, but remaining an outside voice. So what does that mean? I'm an immigrant from Jamaica. I am the only daughter uh, with four brothers and in that story, I had to learn how to be an outsider as the only girl, but to work inside with boys and with my own voice. And I continued that moving to um, an American all-Black neighborhood as an immigrant. What does that mean with other Black people? Again, I was an outsider, and I had to find my way in. We moved to an all-white neighborhood, and um, we were the family that had the swimming pool and we were very much outsiders. We were um, an attraction, a circus attraction for many of our communities. And it's interesting because in both of those narratives, I was very conscious 
conscious of my race. I was very conscious of my girlhood. Um, but I wasn't permitted to really talk about it, nor did I have really the language. I remember my grandmother when we, when she came to America after we had arrived and, uh, I loved the song, Jane Brown, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. And I said that to her and she said, you don't need to announce that. You just have to be. And I thought she was really denying her identity, her blackness. And as I've grown, I understand more and more what that means. Mm -hmm. And so as I move forward to be a mother of two sons and um, to be an artist who's not a formally trained artist, I'm an outsider moving in to be someone who's licensed at a minister who didn't go to formal seminary. The same holds true, whether it's my professional careers or my um, outside work. I have always moved into spaces that formal places have not allowed me in, whether for degree, whether for culture, whether for um, identity. But I find my way inside and I feel good inside because I always remember I'm outside. Hmm. That's an interesting word you use, outsider, because when some people hear it, it could be perceived as a negative, almost like an outcast. But when I hear you speak of it, it's a positive Absolutely. experience. Absolutely. So tell me about the myths around being the outsider. What are some of those um, preconceived notions that people may carry about being an outsider to the point where they're never able to get inside. Right. Well, I mean, I think there are very real things that have to be addressed. Um, outsider may not have the same amount of resources, may not be given the same language, may not be given the same access. So to be outside is not only something of um, a personal choice or something we can just overcome by pulling our bootstraps out. But it's about understanding the master's tools, as Audre Lorde says, but not using the master's tool for our own liberation. So what do I mean by that? As an outsider, as the only girl with four brothers, I had to understand masculinity and gender from a taught perspective. I had to understand um, what worked and what didn't work if I wanted to find a way in. I came into that space definitely as a disadvantage, the smallest one, and the one with less physical power, but I was able to listen in a different way because I always wanted to understand what those in power said. Didn't mean that I had to take on that same cloak, but I had to understand it. So to be a student of um, insiders, those who oppress, those who have power, those with privilege, mm -hmm. uh, it is always incumbent upon the least of these. The first mm -hmm. shall be last and the last shall be first. And I understood that from a spiritual theological perspective that being last or being not included did not mean in a spiritual world that I was in fact last. Mm. I also understood the importance of creating uh, connections with individuals on the inside. You can always find something that's horrible. You can always find that. But I had to believe and I had to understand that my gender was not going to uh, define me, but I was going to find a way to understand, to speak whatever the world in white patriarchal Western society said, I had, I knew what that meant, but I also knew that from a, a Jamaican perspective, it's a different language. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so to just put it in and say, all men are this or all Americans are, that's also problematic. And I think from the outside perspective, I learned very early the importance of, of listening. So 
what sort of tools do you have? I think it's the ability to communicate and communication isn't only about speaking, but it's the ability to listen profoundly mm. to what is said and what is not said to what is said and where it's said, because there's some things that we say in places that are safer and some things that we say in places that are not safe. And so in being able to make that distinction and constantly understanding that what someone is saying now isn't always constant. It is the fact that they feel safer and bolder to say it, uh, or they say it to save their life. So uh, there's a lot of negotiating um, your position in these places. Um, there's a lot of uh, negotiating what people will permit you to do because they're gatekeepers wherever you go. Mm -hmm. um, and gatekeepers have some responsibility to maintain the status quo and to make sure that there is a consistent criteria. So I, I understand that as a professor, as a teacher. So there are a lot of uh, things that I think I've been able to grasp the older I get and to balance in, in really uh, beautiful ways because of those who've allowed me to do that. Mm. And in grasping those things, I wonder, was a lot of that intentional? Like if you can think back to your earliest point of trying to grasp some of this, was it an intentional process or did it kind of become an intentional process? Well, it, it, I think it became intentional very early because of survival. <clears throat> so as a, as a little girl, uh, I wanted to not get as many bruises. But I came to the United States. Uh, I remember sitting in a sixth grade uh, classroom. This was in, or even a fifth or fourth grade classroom. And I remember um, children telling me, um, you're in America, you need to know the A, B, and C. You need to know how to say the American, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance and all of these things that felt frightening and overwhelming. And so very early, I learned the ability to sort of step outside myself and look down. So there was always a, a part of me that was protected. I think that tender part, that part that um, knew the importance of protecting my spirit. So I was intentional um, because my father uh, and mother told us as immigrants, you had to do certain things. And so I learned that my survival was based on being able to um, understand the roadmap that was in front of me, even though I don't follow those roads. Uh, even though I have another map I need to know, when someone says Front Street in that world is a different Front Street than my Front Street. So I think early I understood intentionality, but I had to refine that skill. And there are times that I didn't think it was necessary the older I became and, and forgot that it had to be intentional. So you, there's some bumps and bruises that go along the way. And the older you get doesn't mean that you become less intentional. Mm -hmm. um, I think you your intentionality is uh, softer and it comes across in a different way. Uh, mm -hmm. But I do think that without the intentionality, um, you're definitely going to have some real pain. Let's talk a little bit about your your voice. Um, when I asked your story and you 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 laid it out, the theme is about voice and finding that voice in these different spaces, right? 
Right. How were you able to shape that? Who helped you to shape it? Because you talk about your parents being traditional Jamaican. Right. Then you also talk about this gender dynamic where you're the only girl in the house. Yeah. And you also have a similar dynamic in your house with two boys and your husband. Right. So tell me how you shape that voice and how you continue to shape that voice. That has not been an easy process, the shaping of the voice. Um, whether I think back on when I was taking ballet lessons at the New Jersey Ballet Company in Orange, and my brother, my oldest brother, had to go on the bus with me and take me to ballet lessons. And I was the only Black girl in the class, and um, I did not have... Uh, lessons at an early, early age, and nor did I have a mother or father who did that. So, you know, I was trying to figure it out, and I'm not a quick study when it comes to dance. Mm -hmm. So uh, Michael heard the mothers, the white mothers, talking about, oh, that poor Black girl, she just doesn't seem to be able to, to do well, whatever well means. And so he would tease me about it, and uh, it stuck in there. You know, I, I subsequently had never tried out for any, um, any intentional theatrical. I just became part of the chorus, part of the background. Mm. Um, I didn't want to be seen. I was uh, very quiet. I was younger than most of my peers in school, finishing high school at 16. So I, and people look at me now and I, I, I'm very comfortable in, in what mm -hmm. my, my voice is, but, mm -hmm. um, I didn't feel that. And it has taken a great deal of um, missteps and uh, also hearing from people who are also outsiders. I think about Seton Hall University and going to a Catholic school. I wasn't Catholic, but I went to a Catholic school. And I think that I was able to sink my teeth into some things in student leadership and activism. There were professors there that helped to to shape that voice, to be able to give me um, affirmation that I could lead and I should leave and, and that my words that were written were powerful words and that I should speak them out loud. And uh, my father, during that time, he would, I would read some papers. He said, oh, little girl, you're going to get yourself kicked out of that place. Oh, you're going to get us in trouble. <laughs> and uh you know, and he said that sort of tongue in cheek. And I think there was a little bit of pride in it. And I think, honestly, there was some fear in it. Mm. Because in order for us to be safe, uh, you have to be quiet. And in mm. order for me to be righteous as a girl, you have to be quiet. And so I continued to hear this message. And it wasn't until college that I really pushed. Because I had a particular um, perspective on justice. But I, I didn't really know what it was in a in a theoretical way, or, you know, some of those leaders, my father talked about Marcus Garvey. I saw my parents um, write letters to legislators and elected officials and newspapers mm -hmm. when um, things were happening that they didn't agree with. And it could be something so small, like, you know, the grass didn't grow the right way. And I, mm -hmm. oh, no, you have to, we have to write somebody, we have to write somebody. And they would take a pen out and and I watched them writing. And voice wasn't just about what was spoken, but the written word was powerful. And mm -hmm. I saw that they were able to convey respect and to convey themselves of, of power in that written word. So those things kind of meshed together with professors I trusted, with my ability to learn how to 
to write. I was always writing, but it was a secret. It was something that was private. And I get, became stronger in sharing that, in mm-hmm. sharing those words. And so um, as I began to read and, and re- read theorists like uh, Rawls and, and uh, Paula Freire and mm-hmm. uh, individuals that talked about justice and King and Angela Davis, it was just unbelievable. It was beautiful. And to then see poetry, all of those things gave me the the equipment that I needed. It helped to mm. develop skills as I continue to do it. And the other thing is that on the inside, there are lots of outsiders too, um, who remember and know that they have a responsibility, that their roots should be deep and that they should remain connected. If I'm in a boardroom and I come to the boardroom and there's no one else that looks like me, there's a problem. Mm -hmm. And just because you look like me doesn't mean that you will also agree with me. And so Mm -hmm. I understand identity politics and the subtleness of it It has to go with more than just a superficial what I see. And so I was able to find allies that didn't look like me. And I found people who didn't like me who did look like me. Mm -hmm. So I think from this broad perspective of what the Jamaican um, motto is, out of many one people, that I was able to see oneness through many. You talk about um, writing being a part of who you are in one of the elements of voice that you speak about. Yes. Um, And you talk about also having these different voices in these different spaces. And all I can think about, the first thing that comes to mind is like the ability to code switch in all these different spaces. Absolutely. one space that I know is integral to your identity is religion, faith. Yes. Tell me about your voice in that space and kind of where you were, what you thought, and where you are now and what you think. Yes. Um, so I grew up in a very fundamentalist brethren church where women are not permitted to speak. They wear head coverings. And if you want a song that you hope that someone sings, you mention it to your father and he might bring it to the elders so you can sing the song. So I grew up in that setting, but I was always um, kind of a little confused because my mother uh, wasn't that kind of woman. She had the strongest voice in the house. She um, managed the finances of the house. She was everything in our house. And so was my grandmother. But they were able to still find a way to understand and have a voice even in that space. And so I had these role models of women who are really strong. And I also understood that for me to, to know God, for me to love the Lord, it really was a personal conversation. It's a personal relationship. And so I was taught to understand scripture from a literal perspective. I found that problematic the older I became, but I begin to understand the bigness and the smallness of God's voice and my ability to be safe in that relationship with the Lord. And so as I began to understand, and also um, my faith grew, but I also went and sought more education around those things and mm-hmm. finding Bible studies and finding uh, faith groups that spoke to my my proclivity was difficult. So I did hear some very uh, strange theology and some very um, off-putting things, but I still continued because 
I heard God give me power and permission. Mm. And so uh, I think that the scripture became different for me as I opened it up and I saw these women, whether it's Lydia or uh, Deborah, and I saw these women who were not often mentioned and I understood that their voice was important for me. I remember in college at Seton Hall, I had a, um, a sociology professor and he was talking about, well, in the Bible, there are only Marys and, and uh, Marthas. And I said, no, there are other women. Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, like Lydia. And he, and he made me a joke of the entire class. I, <clears throat> I, if, I mean, I, it, as a black girl, I was red. I was embarrassed. They laughed at me. He laughed at me. And I, I remember not being a dorm student, but I had a friend that was in the dorm. So after class, I ran to her dorm and I said, do you have a Bible? Do you have a Bible? And she's like, what, what, what? I said, just give me a Bible. And I went searching through and I found the scripture I wanted to. And I went to the department, the sociology department, found out his schedule and Uh came back to his class while he was teaching with my Bible. And I said, you were wrong. And he looked at me and he said, excuse me, class. And he said, uh, this is a student I had last, last, uh, hour. And, uh, she has something to show me. So in front of the whole class, he permitted me to say something because I guess he thought I was going to embarrass myself. Um, I didn't embarrass myself and I told him you were wrong. And he then looked and he said, Students, this is what a student looks like. This is what someone who seeks knowledge looks like. He goes, I was wrong Uh, and I'm sorry. And so that gave me, just emboldened me in ways that I, I didn't even know I had. I mean, I just naturally reacted. He was white, he was male, he was older, he was my professor, and I didn't care because I knew I had truth on my side. So I understood that Knowing God meant that it leads you to truth and leads you to understanding. So I began to feel a little stronger. But again, some of my own seeking in the word didn't match up to my own political identity. Uh Uh But I think knowing that my father, um, in many ways, he prepared me for this path that I don't think he really wanted me to be on. He taught me how to negotiate. He taught me how to intellectually argue and how to seek knowledge. He's not someone that went to college. He's somebody that is a Bible study person. He's conservative in his perspectives, but I saw him grow in some ways. And so the issue, for instance, of, well, there's issues of sex, the issues of sexuality, issues of who leads, who doesn't lead, who has mm-hmm. voice, who keeps money. All of those things are, are in the Bible, but they're also uh, a snapshot in time. I believe the word uh, is bigger than time, but the, the examples that are used are specific to time. So I began to understand a little bit about um, studying the context of the Bible in time and place and mm-hmm. culture. I began to intellectually understand how to interrogate text and how to look at particular sections and tie it back to certain kinds of legal law. So I began to look at the Bible from more than just the little girl in Sunday school. Mm-hmm. But I always kept my personal relationship with God personal. Mm. I told God when things that, you know, you say in the Bible, this is not good, but hey, dude, this is really good. I understood the importance of being honest with Mm -hmm. God because that would help me be honest with myself. 
Mm. Um, and as I become more honest with myself and understanding God and that God wasn't going to leave me, I became more settled in knowing that my faith and my decision, my intentional decision to choose God every day will lead me to a place that frees myself and my voice. And that God gives me particular gifts, not to hide, but they're gifts to use to make a difference. And moving to where I am now, I doubted. I was um, afraid because I'm entering spaces that I'm not supposed to be in. Um, I'm entering space, bringing my full self, um, my full voice of God, my full voice as immigrant, as Black, as as heterosexual, knowing that I'm cisgendered in a world that treats uh, homosexual people different, understanding that I have power and privilege in my education, but displaced because of all these other things. And so I, I, the scale wasn't balanced, but the scale was there. And I knew how to um, stand on that scale because God will always make it balance. Yeah. Will always make it balance. Your full voice versus your pure voice. And I say Mm. that phrasing because when we spoke initially, you talked about your pure voice specific to your classroom. And I want to understand then what are the nuances of the full, between the full voice and the the pure voice? Wow. So um, in the classroom, and not all classrooms, in particular classes. So it's happened in my Black womanhood class in particular semesters. It's happened in my um, women in hip hop class. And it happened in my women in leadership classes, specifically those classes. Those classes tend to have older students. The subject matters are a little deeper and um, push us into places of lived experiences and subjugated knowledge in a different kind of way. So I think in those classes, I expect students to to be transparent in their writing and in their interrogation of the text. But it's unfair to ask them to do that without providing a model of how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's some ways that I was very clear developing particular lectures that I knew some things were going to happen. And there were times that it was uh, very organic. And in those classes, this, the ones that I felt the purest, there were individuals in the class that I felt very safe with. They were my children. They were my, my heartbeats in those moments. They would advocate for me even in class. They would see some things and they'd say, hold up, hold up. Dr. Ellis is saying something here. Y'all, you all need to listen. <laughs> or um, they would sense the silence and they'd say, you know, damn, we're doing something now. Mm. And there wasn't judgment. Um, I, you know, how did I know there wasn't judgment? Because they told me things that they realized all they received back was love. And so it wasn't through a lens of the academy expects you to speak a particular way. It wasn't through the cultural expectation of you as a teacher and they as the students. There were boundaries in the sense that they knew I was a professor. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't a one-on-one situation, but there was also a sense that right now, and I think it's when God allows me to be fully transparent because God needs to do something 
mm. magnificent in that moment. Yeah. It's something that it's like the Holy Spirit just sort of clears the way mm. and says, you know what, there, there's just going to be an opportunity here where people get to see me by you seeing yourself. Yeah. And I think the full voice comes by being able to bring all of the skill sets, all of the um, degreedness to the table, all of the lived mm. experience. And it's sort of, you know, everything at one time. There's certain times that people need to know that I'm not just um, a woman. I'm a PhD from an Ivy League university. There's sometimes that's, that's very helpful. That's mm -hmm. very necessary. That's very much in the fullness of seeing me. Um, and I think some one of them allows for um, a softness and one of them presents an armor and both are appropriate in different settings. And the armor says, I'm now on a mission. And the other one says, I'm hearing you and I love you in this moment. Wow. I wonder how long it takes to really clarify those two voices and know when to use them right. responsibly. Right, right. There is there, yeah. and, I, and I love that word. There is a responsibility that comes with that. Yeah. And I think um, it's just in the last few years that I think I really understand uh, how to use them and when to use them. I think I, I continue to grow with that. Um, the full voice, uh, if you don't understand it, it comes across as kind of you, you arrogant so-and-so. Yeah, uh, because you're not you don't really have the the experience to talk about it. Oh yeah, I got a PhD and all. You don't need to say none of that. Yeah, you don't need to say that when you when people can see that, right? Mm. Um, my son Chase says that Dr. Ellis is is sort of this uh, a persona. It's it's an endearing term. It's not like you're Dr. Ellis. He said those who feel close to you, those young folks or people who are giving you respect. There's when they say Dr. Ellis, they're people who know what Dr. Ellis is. Um, mm -hmm. I was writing down and trying to figure out my names because I have a lot of names. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I use those names, and I think knowing the names kind of helps in how responsible we are with it. So, um, okay, so I have Dr. E and Dr. E, um, you have a cool relationship with the students. And these individuals, my son said, they're probably 40 plus, usually fellas. Ellis is two possibilities. Uh, my swaggy identity, if you <laughs> say it the right way. Ellis is a sign of love and respect. And it's used in a professional, distant relationship. Mm. Doc, clergy friends might use it. Close students, friends with respect. Mrs. Williams typically elders or young folks at church, mm. acknowledging my husband. And I mm. think that's a sweet, sweet name. Mm. Annie are those who are the closest to me. Some use this name without a relationship and it really irks me. Mm. <laughs> There's some even now, they hear it from my, uh, my brothers um, and it bothers me. But it's, yeah. um, these are the people I'm most likely to have a meal with. Yeah. Antoinette, the adult friend and colleague, I laugh and I may cry with these folks. I'm not crying necessarily with the other folks. Yeah. With the Annies, I don't cry with, which is interesting. But the mm. Antoinettes are my sister friends, and I'm more likely to cry with them. Dr. <sighs> Ellis Williams are, is the most recent, and they are temporary relationships, mostly students uh, and some other people. But there are people who are not really there a long time. Minister Antoinette, clergy peers and friends, and mommy. <laughs> 
my yeah. my sons and I think they'll call me mommy until they're 50. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, that that's where I am. And I do think that it takes time. You want to get there, but the pure self and the full self, yeah. um, you know, the Lord says, take on the full armor of God. And mm-hmm. uh, David couldn't put on that armor until he was older, but he had the purest things to fight. He had five stones. So I, I think that God will equip us for each phase of life. And I believe that she understands um, the seasons of life. And because there are trade-offs that come along with phases of life, I mean, I think, I think of youth as being really, really full with, you know, your body and beauty and hair and all of this wonderful stuff. Yeah. And there has to be a trade-off. As yeah. you get older, there must be a trade-off. And this is a trade-off that has been beautiful and um, unexpected. The voice of the artist. And I know artist is a big word considering big word considering all of your talents that you bring to that space. But let's talk about the voice of the the actual visual artist in the sense is the the one who's creating the pieces yes. and specifically the piece that is near and dear to your heart now that you're working on developing while you're in sabbatical. During the COVID time, I have really been pushing and uh, testing out new modalities and new techniques. And the piece that I created um, Beware of Shadows in the Park is something that I feel really proud about. It is currently part of the Symphony of Sacrif- of Survival, Symphony of Survival that uh, the Symphony Hall of Newark uh, has on display on its website with a new initiative that was put together by Jasmine Mann. Um, and so abstract, and I'm moving more to conceptual work, um, which is what I think I'm going to be using in my sabbatical. It will, in fact, be guided by interviews and research from women um, across the diaspora and intergenerational to talk about their burn narratives, their burn survival, how they um, continue to make it. And so I'm looking forward to creating new work with things I have never used before. Um, I've been researching how to create work with smoke, how to create work with ashes and charcoal, Mm. how to create work um, that is temporal, but also work that's um, longstanding. So Mm -hmm. I'm already enjoying this so much because Mm -hmm. it's pushing me and uh, wanting, I want to make a difference and I want to say something um, that's why I do what I do. I want to say something that ultimately mm. moves the the dial, yeah. that moves us to feel, that moves us to think. Um, I'm not much of a capitalist when it comes to my art, and I guess I have to learn that a little bit better, but I'm trying to say some things because what I'm finding with my visual art, it's allowing me to say things that my written art is unable to do. Yeah. And I think having them together is powerful. So um, I'm really excited about this next phase.
So Intazaki Shange has a line in her well-known choreo poem for colored girls who've considered suicide is enough that says, I found God in myself and I loved her. I loved her fiercely. If you were to complete that statement, I found God in myself and I blank. How would you complete that? I found God inside myself and I cared for her fiercely. I found God inside myself and I was in awe of her ability to heal. I found God inside myself and found my resting place. Mm. I found God inside of myself and I was able to speak louder than I ever thought. Mm. I found God inside of myself and he, she, permitted me to be everything. My name is Antoinette Ellis Williams, and I am disrupting balance by being my full self. Thank you for listening to Disrupting Balance. To learn more about how I'm disrupting balance, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest at Disrupting Balance. You can also check out my website at www.disruptingbalance.com to get podcast updates and news from the Balance Disruptor community about how you can become your very own master in balancepreneur. Talk soon.